Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of March 4th, 2021. I'm Charles Hain. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably know who we are, but whatever. I'm here with Editor-in-Chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. Filmmaker Kath Tolentino. Hello. Drinking her morning coffee. And this week we are talking about the return of George Lucas to Star Wars. We have two big tech stories to cover. Resolve 17 is out of beta, and what does that mean? And DJI has a brand new drone that is maybe targeted at filmmakers and is kind of interesting. And then we've got all that and a really fun Ask No Film School about old mattresses this week on the No Film School podcast. All right. Our first story this week. And admittedly, we try not to cover a lot of rumors because, you know, there's rumors every day. Every day, there's like some rumor about something that we can tune out. However, there was an interesting rumor that seems to be backed up by a lot of news outlets and possibly IMDb saying that George Lucas uh, wrote two episodes uh, or created some characters in two episodes of the upcoming Star Wars show, Star Wars Andor. If you don't know Andor, I actually did not know about Andor before this, but it is a... <laughs> There are so many Star Wars series that are cooking that it's impossible to know all of them, but I'm sure many people do. It is a prequel series to Rogue One and Rogue One. I don't know why people don't love Rogue One. I loved Rogue One so much. I thought it was so great. And uh, this will follow Diego Luna, who's one of the stars of Rogue One. It seems like they were not able to get Felicity Jones back for Andor, which, you know, people's careers go all sorts of places. Um, I'm, I'm happy for a Diego Luna show. I think it'll be really fun. There's a lot of other good people in it. The, the reason this story I thought was so interesting for me, I wouldn't consider myself a Star Wars fanboy, but like I certainly watched A New Hope as a child and A New Hope is a solid movie, I think that pretty much holds up. I find interesting the experience of creating something, having your relationship with that creation in some ways go sour. I mean, I know that if you're 15 now, you grew up with the prequels and you think they're great, but everybody who is over the age of 25 knows the prequels are all terrible. And that was a complicated experience, I think, for George Lucas to make a thing that made a lot of money, but wasn't necessarily uh, creatively successful to sell that thing, to watch someone else do that, you know, and he's been on record as not always agreeing with all of the decisions of the new movies. He's also uh, in something I think is kind of great and wonderful. Uh, when the trailer came out, people were like, George Lucas, what do you think? And he's like, I only watch trailers in the movie theater, so I haven't seen it yet because the trailer was only online. And he was basically like, I don't watch things online. I just watch things in movie theaters. And I was like, good for you. If I could only watch things in movie theaters, I would too. And, you know, he has a complicated relationship with this thing he created, which is a fascinating thing. As someone who like used to own a company, and then sold it to my partners. The idea of going back and doing work with that company would be bizarre. I cannot imagine doing a job with them, with a new relationship with them. And so imagining yeah. the process of going back and being like, hey, I'm just a writer. I got a WGA contract covering my writing payments on this. Like, you know, where's the snacks, <laughs> guys? I'd be, su I'd be surprised if he was in any unions because I think he's notoriously had some clash with them. But... I, I mean, find, I, I bosses like, have classes with the union and then will join the union when they're employees. Like that'll happen. Right, right. <laughs> I think this is a really interesting story because whether or not this is all true or rumor, it it sort of is a belies an, uh, an interesting general movement happening with this 
massive IP in our industry, which is Star Wars and Disney, et cetera. And George Lucas, who's a massive figure in shaping what the modern landscape is. And what's interesting about it is not just, to me, what you point out, which is that he's coming back. He has this complicated history with letting it go, which includes he thought he was selling them outlines they would use, which strikes me as extremely naive, but he genuinely seems to have believed that when they took Star Wars from him, they were taking his ideas for new movies. So it was going to follow his course, which it did not. So he was very he was very clear in his dislike of what they were doing. Um, but then his sort of protege back in when he was in charge, Dave Filoni, became more and more involved with what Disney was doing. He's one of the EPs on The Mandalorian along with Favreau and Lucas got more involved in that. You started seeing him in pictures on set. You started hearing rumblings that he was engaged. And here's where it takes us. There's only so much they can do with Star Wars. Like they brought up back a lot of the old actors. They've brought back a lot of the old characters. What are things that Disney can do that generates another level of, ooh, they're, they're bringing some, there's a little nostalgia. Well, one thing they can definitely do is bring back George Lucas. And I wonder if there's just this general kind of mutual flirtation interest in like, well, if we were to present audiences with like, hey, Lucas is back, like he's doing something. And I I remember when I interviewed Walter Murch on the podcast, who, you know, is a famous Lucas collaborator friend. I asked him, I was like, on your resume, there's this one random weird thing, which is like you directed an episode of the animated Clone Wars series at one point. It's like, why did you like, why did you, it seems so random because he hasn't directed a lot. And his answer was, he was like, I just, you know, I wanted to try some stuff. I wanted to see what it was like, you know, and George Lucas is his friend. So he's like, sure, do this. And he didn't never did it again. And I wonder if George Lucas has always had the spirit of experimentation and curiosity and I wonder if part of it is like, he's like, yeah, I want to do an episode or two. Like, I'll try my hand at doing one of the episodes of the new shows. Like, it's low stakes for me in a way. And then maybe it goes well. And then he's like, I kind of want to do a movie for for you guys. It's, it's, it's just weird. But I get the sense that, you know, there are market forces at work, which is like, we can make a, a new, ex- we can push out the like, hey, George Lucas has an idea for Star Wars again. Isn't that cool? It's from the source. Because there has been fan backlash and just critical backlash about some of the stuff that's been put out by Disney as being kind of uh, bland or uninteresting or uninspired. But, you know, there's going to, everything with all these shows they're putting out and all this content, there's going to be, it, it would be like the equivalent of if, if Stan Lee was still alive, if fans found out that among all the Marvel content that was coming out through Disney, Disney had on deck, hey, Stan Lee has a new character he came up with. You know, people would be pretty excited to see whatever that was. So I think that this is kind of like savvy from a number of perspectives. And I think whether or not this comes to fruition, I think it's interesting to watch because, and and then the other, the side question I have, which I think I want to hear both of you on it is, on some level, does it annoy us or should it as as filmmakers in this world looking for opportunities and places to be creative if one of the biggest shows in town is like, hey, let's just get the guy who's a billionaire back to do an episode? Like, is it somewhat frustrating that that continues to be the playbook rather than 
let's do something new. Let's have new voices. Cause they're doing that too. I mean, they are, but is it, is that mentality ever frustrating? Honestly, what's like, I may get crucified for this, but what's kind of more frustrating for me is just how much star Wars content continues to be put out, <laughs> which I like Star Wars. I'm not a huge fan of Star Wars. I have gotten the gist of the the narrative structure very early on. They all follow the same structure. There's a big battle waging, and then there's a small battle between some person and their long-lost relative, and they're on either side of the force. And it's like so formulaic. The only Star Wars movie that I truly love is The Last Jedi. And I feel like Ryan Johnson did such a great job of like upending the whole genre and the whole formula with that movie. And I don't know, I watched all the Mandalorian and I'm like, man, that was, except for the last episode, just not, not my cup of tea. I don't really need to see another Star Wars movie or show, even if George Lucas is is attached (laughs) ever again, to be honest. Yeah, I actually love that you bring that perspective because my fandom like supersedes my respect for the medium, I should say. So like whenever I hear people gushing about like WandaVision or whatever, there's a part of me that just thinks like, ugh, why? Like I really just I'm like I don't care. I don't get it. But on the other hand, like I'll tune in for I'll give anything with Star Wars and the branding a shot because it it like like Charles said it kind of raised me like it, it it impacted me at an early age it imprinted my brain but what they do with it is rarely creative and new in fact I've always felt like the last really creative and new, I liked Rogue One by the way Charles but I think that the last creative and new thing they did with the genre was when George Lucas made those three bad prequel movies because he was like I have some weird ideas I want to try and. You know, he made a lot of money, but people are like, ugh, these movies, they're like bad. But I think to me as a creative person, I was like, hey, he was being weird. He was being creative. But the majority of the content is just kind of mushy. Like it, it's it's very homogenous. And I, I, I tend to agree as a filmmaker, like I'm not, I'm saddened that the the landscape is so dominated by these major properties and the best you do with it is like carrying the torch and not upsetting the apple cart but that said the fan in me is just like hey i'll i'll, I'll show up i'll give you my money but i, I i'm int- i like the counterpoint because i'm sure so many and it's just like there's so many things you can do with movies like it came of age in the 90s like Star Wars was not really a thing anymore. And movies were, major movies were one-offs mostly. And there's a lot of creative stuff happening. And that was why I wanted to make movies. Like I loved Star Wars, but I didn't expect that I would grow up, that as an adult, the industry would be like, huh, what kind of Star Wars movie do you want to make? Like, what's your take on a Star Wars? Like I had a friend who's a writer who recently told me he was going in for a pitch. This is similar to this, but valuable to this conversation he was like guys i have a pitch on uh i need a take on strangers on a train which is a great hitchcock movie and you know i we were joking about weird takes but it's like that's what it is right now at the high level like what's your take on blank and that's a shame like that's not why that's not why i got into this but that's what it is um now when i was eight if you told me it was going to be that i would have like fainted 
and been like, I can't wait to sign up. But by the time I turned 18, that was 100% not what I was interested in doing. And I did not think that's what movies were going to be or television. But alas, here we are. Also, behind the camera, like on The Mandalorian, if you look at the directing credits on The Mandalorian, it's Rick Famuyiwa, it's uh, Deborah Chow, it's Carl Weathers, uh, it's Robert Rodriguez, it's Taika Waititi. It's a fairly diverse directing Bryce Dallas crew. Howard. Uh, yeah, Bryce Dallas Howard directed two episodes of The Mandalorian. So, like, and, and I, I want to, I think that that, like, I love that you're pointing that out, and I want to point it out, like, emphasize it because. They're doing a great job with that. And so if George Lucas, who created the whole thing, doesn't necessarily need the WGA check from writing an episode or two, he's probably fine. He's building a museum. That's that's usually the, the hobby of the wealthy. But if he wants to creatively find a way to relate afresh with this thing that he's created, I find that interesting. As much as I don't personally like the, the prequels, I really respect their ambition in being weird. The um, I'm more of a Rogue One and... The Last Jedi, I agree with you, Kath. The Last Jedi is just magnificent. And then I walked out and I talked to my friends who hated it. And I was like, I don't understand what you could hate about that. It was so good. Oh my God, you're the only other person that I've ever met that loves that movie. <laughs> everyone I else that I baffled. know. I'm, <laughs> I'm still baffled. I'm still, everyone is like, but Luke would never do that. And I'm like, did you not watch the original movies? Like, it is a struggle with the dark. Oh, I don't know. I, I thought it was magnificent. I loved it. And like the blood, salt, it was great. Um, I'm a big, big fan of that. But like, what's interesting to me is what it says about our culture that we are creating this much content within these limited worlds. Like there's an urge that we have. The urge of the 90s was like, I'm going to see new movies and it's going to, you know, uh, what is it? Werner Herzog, who's like, movies help us dictate what are, what, what is possible in our dreams. That's not the exact Herzog quote. And I'm not going to do the accent because I don't do it well. But like, you know, there's this like... <laughs> By creating all of this content in one world, it does like, it does become like inward facing where people just want to sort of like curl up in the familiar as opposed to expanding their palette of what things can be. What I respect about what they are doing with Star Wars is they're trying to expand the palette of that blanket. They're trying to say, okay, you all want to curl up in this blanket and be warm and cozy. We're going to make this blanket bigger. We're going to tell different stories with different characters within this blanket that help expand the palette of your landscape. And I like that. And I respect that. And I can't blame Disney for creating it when there's clearly so much hunger among such a large audience to participate in it. And I guess the biggest hope is that just, you know, people other than George Lucas will get opportunities to prove themselves in that landscape that then will lead to them. You know, I mean, the thing we forget about so many of our favorite directors of the 60s and 70s is it's not like they were doing nothing and then they got a $10 million studio movie that we love. It's they were directing Western TV shows. You know, Sam Peckinpah spent five years, 10 years directing a whole bunch of now forgotten Western TV shows that none of us have ever seen, except when I went on a deep Peckinpah range and I found them online so I could watch them. And they're not great. But like that got him to the place where he could make <laughs> his, you know, amazing 60 movies or like Elliot Silver's. Yeah, Elliot Silverstein, I went back and watched his Twilight Zones. They're fine, but his Twilight Zones are what got him to make Cat Baloo. You know, there is no Cat Baloo without those Twilight Zones. So if this you becomes... Make some... Yeah, you make a really good point. I always remember learning about how John Ford made countless one-reelers that no one will ever see and, like, silence. And, like, by the time he made feature films, he had, like, hundreds of movies he'd shot and directed <laughs> that, were like, that were, like, on his, like 
resume. And I think that um, you make a good point. I see the Mandalorian and a lot of these things as like the modern day vanilla Western from that era. Uh, probably just similar in in a lot of story wise and theme wise, but also just execution wise. So it's where people cut their teeth with budgets, with some of these modern effects. With um, they get their they get their chance, and then they'll do more, hopefully. But yeah, I think we could do a whole podcast on debating the rise of Skywalker because I was not a fan. So, but but we should save that because that's for like a nerd cast. That's not this. <laughs> that's not oh, for them. No, the, the next time it's Yumi and Kath, the only thing we are talking about is the last Jedi and Kath and I are going to gang up on you. Or the last about- Jedi, sorry. Rise of Skywalker is the one that everyone can agree was not good. Oh, the I didn't last even Jedi watch. is the polar that the last Jedi is the polarizing one. And the that's fascinating. The- and I will was the Rise of Skywalker the last one? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was a terrible movie. That was. It was. Uh, <laughs> it was kind of confusing and <laughs> and fascinating um, because of how you could almost feel how much it was crushed under the weight of the pressure. It, it, it's fascinating um, from the filmmaker perspective, but. Yeah, we should talk one day. We should talk about Last Jedi because there's a lot of interesting stuff there with what Ryan Johnson wanted to do, what J.J. Abrams had done, how the dictate, the pressure of Disney, and there's so much going on there. Um, it, it's fascinating to me, not even just as a Star Wars fan, but as from like a what what's happening at that level in the in the industry. Relevant to this conversation too is like I'm I'm kind of. On, on one level, I'm sort of surprised that George Lucas wants to get back involved only because I can't imagine spending my entire life devoted to the same fictional world. Like, I know that there are people out there who really do enjoy that. And like, you know, but George Lucas has built this world that now has a life of its own. And, you know, millions of people are invested in. And I just feel like if if that were me at a certain point, I'd be like, cool, I'm out. I'm so exhausted. I like can't <laughs> be engaged with my creation anymore. Just let me have a normal life, you know. In some ways I feel like it's almost a curse. Like he has to he has to stay involved and engaged. Well, except ten years ago he took the money and he left. And he lived in Chicago for a while, which is like of any North American city where you can escape Star Wars, I think Chicago is your best bet. And like, <laughs> you know, in terms of like, yeah, I don't know what I mean by that, but I'm just laying that out there on the line and I'm going to yeah, walk away from that statement. It's interesting. <laughs> I like the point though, Kath. I think that it's, I mean, the the hack joke that comes to my mind is that is the Godfather 3, which talk about other bad sequels, but where he says is they suck me out. Or as soon as I'm out, they suck me back in. But I wonder, just like a lot of the actors, just like, you know, maybe Harrison Ford or so many other people, there's a certain like, um, like 1983, which was a long time ago now, George Lucas was like, dusted off his hands. It was like, Star Wars, I'm done. (laughs) I'm doing other stuff. Like he really did, right? Like he really was like, I'm done. Like I, I put it to bed. There's nothing more to do there. And honestly... Like the movies, you can even tell in Return of the Jedi, 
it, it, it feels like they were kind of running out, right? That's the, like, there's another Death Star. Okay, I think we're done here. Like, I think we've wrung everything we can out of this. We did great. Goodbye, everyone. Let's go out on top. And, like, famous last words, because it wouldn't be long before it was like, well, what else can you do? That Like, it, it's almost like a, an abusive relationship with the creative idea that's like, he 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 keeps he kept saying all his career. He's a fascinating figure to me. But he kept saying things like in interviews, like I'm going to make experimental movies. He's always claimed that because that's where he started at SC. He was the guy who did super weird experimental stuff that led to THX one one three eight. Like he was the guy who was screwing around with film stocks and sound, and like he didn't want to make narrative. And so he always says he's going to do that, or he's like, I'm going to make something weird, and and he's and then. One way or another, he winds his way back into it. And it's like, this just seems like the latest incarnation of it. And I wonder psychologically if it's just like, if there is some surrender to, I guess Star Wars (laughs) is never going to leave me. Or like, or if maybe he uh, hates it or maybe, who knows? But it is a fascinating point because he has so often said that he was done. He said after the prequel, he sold it to Disney. He's like, I'm done. I'm gone. It's for new people now. But then you see pictures of him on set and you're like, what are you doing, dude? Like, you can't really, you can't quit you. You can't quit Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Well, it makes me think about that amazing Oprah quote, which is when people tell you who, who they are, believe them. And when given resources, what George Lucas likes to do is more Star Wars movies. I mean, we forget that like... <laughs> You know, I mean, Stephen King wanted to write... Stephen King has, what, at least two other pen names that he hasn't publicly released when they were in Richard Bachman, and then there was another he used for fantasy initially because he was like, oh, I want to make these other things, and I'm afraid if it's under the Stephen King name, people associate with it with horror, but I'm going to write this other thing, so I'm going to write it as this. Or, like, even J.K. Rowling, who, like, when she wanted to write an adult novel, she wrote it under an assumed name because she was like, oh, I don't want people looking for Harry Potter books to find this book that has sex in it. So like George Lucas could have decided when he got $4 billion 10 years ago that he's just going to create a new name and direct movies that who cares if anyone sees, I'm going to make the thing that I have the budget. I don't have to pitch to anyone. I can just make the thing. And, you know, that's what Coppola has been doing. I mean, people forget, but, you know, in the last 15 years, Coppola has made, what, three movies, four movies? He became a gentleman filmmaker, he said, who was like, okay, I have a wine business that's going to pay for me to make movies. And I'm not going to ask anybody else for money when my wine business can afford it. I'm going to make a movie. And every three or four years, he makes a movie. And like some of them cross over and get attention. Some of them don't. But he just makes the interesting things he wants to make. So like when people show you who they are, like George Lucas, you know, no matter how much he says he would like to be an art person, he's Star Wars. And that's okay. You know, yeah, I mean, it's not it. like THX one one three eight was any good anyway. So I'm fine not <laughs> the, seeing the short is better than the feature. And actually, I am glad that we that I'm glad that you brought it up, George, because for those who don't know, the short THX one one three eight is um, you can watch it on Canopy right now. I don't know, maybe you can see it on YouTube too. But I randomly stumbled upon it the other day, and I was like, oh, it's a George Lucas movie. Okay, <laughs> and I watched it, and I was like, what? <laughs> what is this? It was so not what I was expecting from George Lucas at all. And so it's an interesting um, watch for people who are making shorts and, you know, who want to see how a career progresses. It's very, very, very different from Star Wars and from what you would think George Lucas would uh, Yeah, his story is so interesting. He, 
he made that. That was what his heart, like that's where his interests were as a young filmmaker. And then he made the bigger one. And and another thing, Walter Murch, uh, Walter Murch collaborated with him on it. And we talked about it in our interview and like what it was like, how, how they were both kind of like more interested in creating strange things with picture and sound. And I think the idea for the short was originally Murch's actually. And then Lucas was like a kind of a hustler. Like he managed to get into a program at SC where he got some money to make bigger things. And he ended up making the feature THX1138. And he ended up kind of going under Coppola's wing in American Zoetrope. And the feature was a failure of, of THX1138. And then Lucas was sort of like, shamed into hey can you make like a movie that people might actually like which led to american (laughs) graffiti which it was just like oh let me try that like how do i make something that'll appeal to people but he everything he's just a weird unique figure and like uh i i find that his he's tried every once in a while he'll do these things like he did radio land murders and then i think red tails was the he produced last. Red Tails. Someone else directed right. it. Right. He produced it. R- right. And but I think he shot some of it because he ends up doing some of this stuff on these movies. But like he, it's just a he's a weird guy. He's a weird guy. Is now the time to share my unsubstantiated George Lucas THX thirty eight rumors? Yes. Please. Yes. Okay. This is totally unsubstantiated. This is just a rumor. There's no basis in fact. George Lucas, please do not sue me. So. I hope he's George listening, Luke, man. That would be yeah, cool. I mean, I really, I, I would imagine he does. I, I think he's probably a regular <laughs> listener. Um, so he uh, he donated famously $175 million, million to USC Film School, right? It was until Dr. Dre's donation with his Beats by Dre money, it was the biggest donation to any school in the history of mankind. USC has like two of the top five biggest donations ever, USC. One's George Lucas, the other was Dr. Dre and his producer buddy, um, and you went there. Let me just get me correct me if I'm wrong. To sorry for the interjection, but you went to SC grad school before the big restructuring yes. of that, right? The old Lucas Building, as they called yeah. it, right? That's when I was around there a lot, and yeah. I, I always the new one was just like, holy crap! They turned it. The into new one like, looks like a mall. You know, it's ridiculous. It's like a and mall like a, or a real stu- or like a real studio or something. And there's a Kung Fu Panda statue. I went back when there was still a George Lucas building and a Marsha Lucas building. And the drama we'd always heard is that those donations happened after their divorce. And that's why the Marsha <laughs> Lucas building was bigger than the George Lucas building. Um, I don't know if that was true, but the, there, there was a George and a Marsha building and the Marsha building was slightly larger, which I found really amusing. So the rumor I heard about that $175 million donation is that one thing people don't often know about USC, every film school is different in how this works, but USC remains retains ownership to the underlying IP of your student films while you're at USC. And their argument for this is that it is a university-wide policy because we are a research institution. And, you know, if you're in the medical program and you're doing research and you research a drug, USC owns that drug. That's how USC is USC. And so they have a, a, a school-wide policy and it applies to the film school. And you're told that like your, week, your fourth week there. Nobody worries about it because very few people turn their thesis film into a successful feature. It happens occasionally. Um, the Hebrew Hammer was one that was a short film at USC got turned into a feature. It happens every couple of years. It's not regular. And you just deal with it. They own the underlying IP. It's not a huge big deal. Not every film school does this. There's many film schools that are like, no, you're paying for your short film. You own it. Um, that's probably a better model, but USC owns it. 
So THX 1138 was a short film. USC, George made it um, at USC, made no money. Got turned into a feature film, made no money. Huge bomb, did not matter. In the 90s, after George Lucas was famous, he re-released on Blu-ray THX 1138, and it made hundreds of millions of dollars because he had now done Star Wars, and he re-released it on Blu-ray, and they promoted it, and it was bought by many people who were Star Wars fans to watch his early work. At which point, apparently, USC sued him for their money, which is bold. Is that the unsubstantiated rumor, or is that fact? This is the unsubstantiated. No, this is the unsubstantiated rumor. Um, at which point, because he's not given a dollar since, at which point he agreed to pay them one hundred and seventy-five million dollars if he could call it a donation, and they would never get a penny again. And so, at some point, USC did the cost-benefit analysis of: Is it worth it for us to sue our? like one of our already biggest donors now to try and get our money? Or do we just keep milking him forever without suing him? And they made the decision to sue him is the rumor that goes around about what caused the $175 million donation. And then he's never given a penny again, or apparently talked there ever since. So that is the, that's the, that's the fun little bit of USC goss that I have no substantiation for. I should have said USC don't sue me actually, because George Lucas doesn't care about that story, but it makes USC look kind of shades. Wow. They, they're owning the IP is a weird thing because I remember that from working on a bunch of those thesis projects. Everybody was like, yeah, USC owns it. It was kind of like a weird, like, an, I don't know, creepy. It, it, it irks me a little bit, but I get it on the at the same time. But yeah, you can tell, you just know, like, Lucas has this weird, again, filmmakers out there, like, we ended up on this long tangent about George Lucas, but he is an extremely important figure in independent film and filmmaking history because not just because of the success of star wars like even set that all aside he's like this weird maverick like he stepped out of the industry he self-funded his own blockbusters which is kind of crazy like who does that he holds the studios hostage sometimes on distribution because he's like hey you want star wars here's the deal like with fox with the prequels he was like here's my demands like how he kind of planted his flag up there in Marin, building his own everything from THX Sound to Lucasfilm to um, Industrial Light and Magic. Like he's a real unique figure and uh, kind of a creative hero because even if you don't like the the movies, like the writing and the directing, you kind of have to look at the whole picture and say like, damn, that guy made his own rules, you know? And he... And again, like he keeps coming back to making Star Wars movies, which whatever, but like that, that whole, the thing of not owning it, I could tell, I I agree. Like it must chafe him to no end that USC has something that it's just like the fact that that shorts out there. Cause he also goes back and tinkers with all his movies. Cause it's like, Hey, I can do whatever I want now. Of course, Disney can, I would imagine in the negotiation for that donation, he got the rights back. I would assume. Right. Because he's, yeah, because that's probably the main, he was probably like, I'll give you whatever you want. I just want my, my power. Like, <laughs> I want my creative power. Like, he's like that. But that's um, interesting because, like, again, famously, like, he would have had Spielberg direct the first sequels to Star Wars, but he had a falling out with the DGA. And Spielberg could not direct the prequels or the or the sequels originally because of that, because he was like, I'm not doing DGA stuff. I don't like the DGA. Like they're, they're, he's just a not, he doesn't play by the, the rules, basically. But without that, there would be no Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. So, you know. <laughs> of course. Wait, what? I don't know what that is. I don't know what you're talking about. 
Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal I'm, Skull. You just erased <laughs> it from your memory. You just you just and cut it out. I'm trying to. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. In tech news. So DJI has released a new drone and I wanted to talk about it because it's weird and may be relevant to filmmakers. So what is it? It's called the FPV, which is first person view. And what that means is you wear goggles when you fly it. And then it streams in like very close to real time, nearly zero delay images to these goggles. So it feels like you're flying through the air. Now, first person drones have been around for a while, but they're primarily thought of as racing drones, right? And a racing drone is usually not great for filmmaking. Racing drones are all about speed. They often will only have a front facing camera. Their camera won't even have a gimbal on it because the gimbal adds more weight, right? And when you're racing, you just need to look forward you know, they're not going to have the stabilization technology for that camera that you associate with. They're not going to have the battery life because the battery only needs to last for the race. A racing drone is a very specific thing. And the same way that like a race car is not a camera car, a race drone is not a camera drone. So it's interesting that they've released this FPV and it's not super lightweight. It's like kind of bulky for an FPV and it has a 4K 60 frame per second camera. And they released a sizzle video for it, which looks like a sizzle video for a camera drone. Like it's all these beautiful shots of like mountains and cars driving on beaches. And like it, they're selling it like a camera drone almost. And it's interesting also because it's twice as fast as its competitor. Like a Mavic will get up to about 72 kilometers per hour, which is like 44 miles per hour. This will get up to 140 kilometers per hour, which is like 88 miles per hour. So if it were in Back to the Future, it could go back in time. It's super fast, but you can shoot 4K60 with it. The footage in the test scenes look beautiful and you wear a helmet to fly it. It's kind of this interesting thing. I mean, I don't think every indie filmmaker will care about it, but like if you're trying to do an indie car commercial or you're trying to do an indie version of Vanishing Point, you're doing a lot of car work, if the car's going 40 miles an hour and your drone can only go 40 miles an hour, you can only do a couple of shots. You can only like keep up with the car. But if you want to do that amazing shot where you like come from behind and you overtake the car and you spin around to look back, this is the drone that you're going to end up with. This is the drone that can go twice as fast as the car. And that's actually something to think about. I just want to chime in. I, I've seen this story go live on nofilmschool.com. I watched the video. This thing is amazing <laughs> like like whether you're making movies with it or not this is so cool that like i just want to take it place i just want to get it and take it places and fly like i don't know how the video i don't know what the experience of using it is like i really want to talk to somebody who does but it's so cool looking like that i almost feel like you get like dizzy or fall over maybe like this is flying <laughs> this is virtual flying it's nuts yeah, I'm watching the sizzle reel right now. It looks amazing. It's like a video game, like filmmaking, living hybrid. And it raises all these other questions for me of just like, 
I don't know when we've we've talked to people who've done some of the digital. Uh, I don't even know. I'm not going to use the right terminology, but like virtual filmmaking, shooting or directing, where you're in a kind of virtually created space. You put the goggles on, you move a camera, um, like when they shot, say, like The Lion King for Disney. But this is like real world version, like be in the camera, move around. Like how close are we to that on other scales? I assume very close. This thing is crazy. Like I just... um, I, it opens up so many creative questions, not to mention just fun that I think it's super exciting and everyone should check it out. Will we ever have a need for a crane anymore? If we can just, you know, get one person who knows how to operate a drone like this and get all those shots, it just like totally renders obsolete a lot of the tools that we've been using historically. Well, the problem is still sound. You can still hear the propellers. So that is still the beauty of a crane is I can get that crane a foot from someone's face and then slowly back up as they walk along and get that wide shot, you know, get the American, mm-hmm. not the, you know, day for night shot where it's like, you know, whereas you're not getting a drone within 10 feet of any of your key performers usually if you can avoid it. And like, even when you're 50 feet away, you're hearing the buzz. Hmm. Another cool way to look at it is just like it may make something, it may replace certain tools in certain circumstances. It may just augment the tools we use in other in other circumstances. Like it may go along with. There may be reasons to still eat, but either way, it's just this new capability that could change the way we shoot so many things. And there's certainly like with this kind of VR remote, like you know, you're in the camera view thing. There's a lot that could be opened up here like that I just, my mind goes to like, what, what can't you do? It's also in the age of COVID, a safer way to shoot. And like, you know, I, I work at a film school as my day job and we, you know, we have drone rules and we had like one person asking to do drone work a year before. And in the last year we've had a dozen because people are like, oh, wait a minute, this is a way where I can get shots where I can have fewer people on set and I can get this wider shot from further away and it all works out better. So like that is, it's, it is the right time for it because like you certainly can't do a crane shot where the camera's getting super close to people. But if there's a built-in zoom or an interchangeable lens and you can get the camera further away where you don't hear the buzzing, you can get a different kind of crane shot or a different kind of overhead view with this that is also COVID safe and requires fewer people on set and all of that. So there's like some perks to that. The one thing I do have to say with first person view is remember um, it is harder and more dangerous to fly first person view because like, you know, if I'm looking at the drone and I'm like, oh, I'm going to back up, I'll see if there's a tree behind it. With first person view, you're you're basically inside the drone in your goggles. So if you decide to back up, you're not looking behind you. Now, there's a whole bunch of technology built into this to help you avoid danger. There's like obstacle avoidance systems and stuff. That's why this even exists right now. Like the cameras aren't new. The goggles aren't new. That's all been around. It's really the obstacle avoidance tech has gotten good enough to make this make sense. But it's still kind of terrifying dangerous and people should be really careful as they train themselves to shoot with this thing yeah and also what happens when you do hit a tree and then your drone is out there you know however many miles away Uh, this is actually my question about drones in general if you if you end up losing it you just have to go out and search for it like is there first off dji has an insurance program i don't remember the exact details but like if you pay for the insurance program, they will replace a certain number of lost drones over your ownership period because they know people 
do lose drones. And I believe they have access to the telemetrics. So it's not like you can just sell the drone and get another free one. They can tell it crashed. And they're like, oh, because we saw that you ran out of battery over, you know, this gorge. We know you probably lost the drone, I believe, as part of the insurance. But yeah, I mean, that's one of the I've, I've not done a ton of drone flying. Most of my drone flying is in Arkansas. But yeah, I mean, I was like, I'm going to fly over the Mississippi River. And then I was like, oh, shit, what if it falls in the Mississippi River? And, you know, it is a part right. of drone flying where you're like, you have to keep you want to keep a line of sight on the drone. I mean. Drone flying does take training. Like there's FAA certification you can take. There are other trainings you can do. And yeah, I mean, it is a, it is a thing. Um, most drones now are pretty good at managing their own battery life. So like when the battery gets low enough, it can't return to home. It'll warn you. And then some drones will automatically return to home if they're like, oh, if I don't return to home now, I'm going to run out of battery. They'll just come back. They'll just be like, wherever I took off, I'm going back there. So, you know, we're getting more drones are one of those weird things where like it's the cool part of the tech isn't necessarily the spinning umbrella, uh, spinning rotors, because we've known about those for 100 years. The cool thing is all of the stuff that makes it easier to do it, like knowing how to get home, knowing when its battery is going down on its own, that kind of stuff. Cool. All right. And then our last story this week, Henrik Prinz asks a story that I thought was a question. Great. I live in a warehouse with 2,100 feet of space. When I shoot here, there's a lot of reverberation. What do I do? Do I glue foam mattresses to the walls? Um, I loved the foam mattresses suggestion. Okay, so the first thing I would say is that one of the things I remember going on to my first set with like a real sound person, and one of the things I loved that I saw for the first time was I was like, oh, they're getting out C stands and putting up sound blankets to cut off whatever space they're in as much as they can. So like you're in a 2,100 square foot warehouse, but unless you're all the way in one corner shooting the other direction, most shots you do, you're cutting off more than half the space probably, right? You're like halfway through one wall or, or pointing to a close-up or whatever. So like the first thing I would invest in is some used C stands or uh, Mambo combos with speed rail and some sound blankets. And then you try and basically like, tent yourself in to whatever space you're working in. So like you're working in this corner, like put some, put some sound blankets up to either side or up on the ceiling or that kind of thing so that you're controlling as much as possible, making the space as small as you possibly can. And that's going to help a ton with reverb. And depending upon what kind of set you're working on, you will regularly see that a sound person is like rigging up with like rope or a C-stand, something to like blanket off a space to sort of control reverb. If you're in a really like shiny reflective kind of space, super common, definitely a thing. The next thing I would do is you, you rightly point out like, oh, I have all these walls and the walls are really reflective and that's not helping me. Right. You say you've got glass, concrete, hardwood floors. So Cover as much of the hardwood floor as you can with rugs. Cover as much of the ceiling as you can with something. Like, you know, you could either use like foam mattresses or, or just other foam or people will use old egg crates. But the problem with doing that to your walls is you're eventually going to want to see the walls in shot, right? So what I would do with walls is I would, again, get more sound blankets. And if you don't want to pay the money for real sound blankets, you can go to any moving company and buy moving blankets. They're not quite as good. They're not quite as thick as actual sound blankets, but they're like a fifth of the price. So if you have to cover like a giant wall, moving blankets will be a good start. And then I would figure out some method of like hooks and loops or wire or, or rope so that I could cover a wall with moving blankets 
but that it would be really easy to take down if I wanted to see that wall in shot for some reason. And then if you like cover the floor in rugs, you cover the ceiling in moving blankets and a couple walls in moving blankets, and that will cut down all of your reflection so much. And you'll still be able to be like super flexible and be off to a much better start. That's, that's my thoughts. That sounds like great advice, <laughs> but a lot, a lot of work. <laughs> I mean, I think this is probably obvious, but I'll say it anyway. I feel like you should just test a lot of different things. Um, try different things you can put up that don't cost you a lot um, and see if like certain areas are better or if certain sound padding in certain spaces are better. I think you could also try different recording devices on different settings. Like, you know, you'd be surprised that I've found just by uh, use this podcast, for example, I've found that certain mics pointed certain directions in the room with certain like at certain levels like if i toy with the levels a little bit like i can get a better sound with less interference even without using sound reducing elements around me i've also worked in areas where people really went all out to like blanket everything and like that i i don't know that uh, i feel like darren our tech editor would hate me for saying this like anybody who's really a sound person would but i feel like sometimes there's a point of diminishing returns where it's like to the untrained ear you might be making a lot more work than you're getting in the ROI there, as they say, is not necessarily so good because you could probably get pretty decent sound if you just like get the get better recording tools and, and be more creative about where you aim them and the space, the corner of the space you're in, et cetera. So I would test a lot. I don't know if that's good advice or not, but that's what I I was about to say. Testing is the best possible advice. Like do one thing, test, do another thing, test, and then stop when you like the sound. Because you can totally make it too dry. Like a, a space that like is completely dead doesn't always sound real or appropriate for your scene. Yeah. And I mean, some people are going to have more sensitivity than others. Like I actually don't have great hearing. So, like, so I'm probably the wrong person to ask. But some people are going to be sensitive to stuff. And so you should test and probably ask other people to take a listen or maybe work with an editor or someone in sound and ask them to take a listen or ask them what the best recording devices are and research. We have some great, uh, hey, no film school plug here. We have some great stuff about sound and good recording devices and mixers and mics. And you could research it on the site and, and see what we recommend. But I think a lot of it could come down to the stuff you're using. Alrighty, so that is this week on the No Film School podcast. Does anybody want to plug their pluggies? I'm Kath Tolentino. I'm a filmmaker, and I also run a short film showcase in the Bay Area in California called Bay Made. BayMadeFilms.com is where you can find that. And you can see my short film, Parachute, on Short of the Week, and um, on Instagram at Parachute.film. I, I, I want to point out that it's Bay Made, B-A-Y, made because if you google yes. bay made b-a-e there are many there's there's an instagram for bay made there's a spotify for bay made apparently a lot of people significant others are making things so it's b-a-y made thank you b-a-y-m-a-d-e films.com yeah check us out um although you should have gotten bay made b-a-e because that is, you know, in the zeitgeist five years ago. Uh, I'm Charles Hain. I'm a filmmaker. You can see my work at charleshain.com. Uh, you can see my feature and my series at Amazon Prime if you just search for my name. And if you watch them and you like them, give them five stars because algorithms rule our world. George. 
Speaking of algorithms ruling our world, make sure to give this podcast five stars and leave a comment and rate, like, and subscribe and let us know what you think and send us questions at ask at nofilmschool.com. And I'm George Gentleman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School, of course. You can find every story we spoke about today and more at nofilmschool.com. I want to direct your attention to, since we talked about sound and recording, in the footer at the bottom of the No Film School homepage, there's a little section called Gear Guides. If you hit that little thing, you will open up a page that has a bunch of gear guides, including a lot of stuff on sound, camera, drones, accessories, software. We go through a lot of the tools available on the market. We tell you what to buy, what not to buy, and why. So check it out. And thanks for listening. 